going to need to tell you that it's always a privilege to preach the Word of God, but especially, I think, even today, since it's Reformation Day, and we remind ourselves of some of the wonderful and glorious truths that we say we believe and we confess. And so I want to uh, draw out this morning from Isaiah chapter 43. So if you have your Bibles, go to the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah chapter 43. I want to draw out some of these uh, wonderful, glorious truths that we profess uh, and say that we believe. So we will read the chapter. I want to speak this morning about God exalting truths. God exalting truths. And of course... Every truth, all truth, every single truth exalts God because all truth comes from God Himself. God is truth. His Word is truth. And so, uh, what I hope to show you this morning all comes from the Word of God. So, let's begin together. We'll read uh, Isaiah 43, verse 1, beginning. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, For I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and though the rivers, they shall not, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seber, in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say, It is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God." Also, henceforth, I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake, I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember 
not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not brought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. May God bless to us the reading of His Word. Let's pray together. Gracious God, sovereign God, the only God, our Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, and Holy Spirit. We thank you that we gather this morning in the name above every name, the exalted name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've come to hear your word because we are your people. We've come because we need your truth and we love your truth. And we desire above all, gracious God, that by your spirit this morning, you would speak to us afresh with glorious truths that we encounter in your word truths that have been so precious and so powerful to so many. And so we commit ourselves to you now. Ask that in the preaching of your word, the Lord Jesus Christ may be exalted, that you, God, our gracious Father, might receive all the praise and all the glory, and that the Holy Spirit, by his might and by his power, would pour himself into our hearts afresh, and that we might be revived, and that we might stand again for the truth and in the truth. And so we commend ourselves to you now and ask your blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 There is a picture that I saw recently uh, when I was away. Uh, it's a famous picture of Luther standing at the, the castle door of Wittenberg. Some of you many, uh, may have seen it. It's in black and white and it's in color. But there is Luther standing with the hammer in his hand, and the 95 theses are on the door, and there are a number of people that are gathered around him looking on as Luther is turned towards them. And the little caption said, uh, as I read this, it said, no, 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 the door's okay. I'm just fixing your theology. That's the Reformation, fixing our theology. 
And this morning I want to consider with you as we look at, at God's Word, as we look at Isaiah chapter 43, remind ourselves 504 years ago of that time when Luther uh, nailed the 95 Theses to the church door. I want to talk this morning about the five solars of the Reformation. It might interest you to know that the five solas of the Reformation are not a 16th century invention. They have always existed in the true preaching of the gospel, in the true preaching of God's word, but they were generally compiled as we know them today only in the 20th century. But all of them, every single one of them, the five, exist clearly strongly, powerfully, in the Reformation when Luther began to do his work in the early 1500s. And so I want to consider with you this warning shot that Luther fi fired across the bow of Christianity in that century so long ago, urging the church to change, urging Christians, professing Christians, to really be Christians, to not just be Christians in in word or name, but to be Christians in deed, to truly demonstrate, show forth that they were born of the Spirit, born from above. It is, it is the gospel that changes us. It is, it is the gospel as we read it in the Bible. It is the scripture that affects every one of us. And that's one of the glorious things uh, uh, from uh, the study of the solas that we find, these glorious truths that we want to talk about, that they affect us. We need so desperately in our own time a return to truth. We recognize that. Pluralism abounds. Relativism abounds. Uh, this is our society. This is our culture. This is our country. This is the world. The apostles were said to be men who, who changed the world. They turned it upside down. How did they do that? They did it by the preaching of Jesus and Jesus crucified. And the truths that surround those truths, the truth of Jesus crucified, all making up this glorious, beautiful gospel, the good news, that Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chiefest, as Paul said. We all recognize that. And so Luther, in beginning his reform of the church, that led to an understanding, I think, that the true Reformation must be and always should be an internal work. We're not talking about reforming ourselves externally on the outside. No, the first essential thing that is necessary when we talk about any Reformation is to understand it the way Luther or Calvin or any of the Reformers understood it, that it requires an internal change. That it's not just merely an external change that we're interested in, but we're interested in changing our hearts, having them changed by the truth, by God. And that's essentially what, what the Reformation is about. It's about regeneration. It's about repentance. It's about returning to God. It's about revival. It's about renewal. It's about reform. That's something I think that we should always consider every day when we read our Bibles. Oh Lord, renew my heart. Oh Lord, change my heart. Change me. Make me like Yourself. That should be our prayer. That's the prayer of a reformer. That God would change him or change her. And I know one thing, my heart can never be changed and can never be fixed by external means. 
In fact, the human heart is always prone to make use of external means because it finds comfort in doing something by itself for itself and then glorifying itself and boasting before God, I'm okay with you, God, when God says in reality, no, inside there's a problem. And that's what we need to understand. The Old Testament wicked king, King Ahab, when he was challenged by God, he humbled himself and he changed his clothes. So he put off his kingly robes and he put on sackcloth, but he never changed his heart. And so you can appear for a while, for a transient moment in time, to have changed yourself, but it's external and it's not internal. And so the message would be, don't be like Ahab of old, who's a false hypocrite, who changes on the outside so that he might be okay in the meantime, but in reality, the internal heart was unchanged. We all need change of heart. We all need that. That is only what the gospel does. That's only what the Spirit of God does in bringing change to us. It's the gospel that brings change. Now, if you talk to people on the street, they'll tell you they know the gospel. What they really mean by that is that they know about the gospel. But they don't know the gospel. They know about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. And that's the distinction and the distinguishing feature. The Reformation essentially was a recovery of the true gospel. You often hear that Latin phrase, post tenebras lux, right? After darkness, light. Post tenebras, after darkness, lux, light. That's what the Reformation is. It's light amidst the darkness. And the light is the gospel. The light is Christ. The light is the cross of the Lord Jesus. His person, His work. So, a recovery or a return to these truths, or perhaps, perhaps a reminder of these truths, like we tried to do this morning, is that the essential part of these truths is that they direct us to God. That they point every one of us to consider God as God is. Not as we want God to be. Not as we conceive a God of our own making in our minds and satisfy ourselves, our consciences, that that is our God. No, we want the God of Scripture, the God of the Bible. That's the only God we're interested in because He is the only true God. So we need, if I may say to you this morning, this change. We need to think about this change for a number of reasons. For example, first of all, there are many Christians and non-Christians alike, who frankly are just plain ignorant of the Bible. They don't know the Bible. It's, It's hard to understand that a Christian would not know their Bibles. But sad to say, I think it's very true. When it comes to simple, basic Bible knowledge, Bible doctrine, these kinds of things, many people, many professing Christians, just don't know. I'm not inclined to know. In fact, Chris and I were watching Jeopardy this past week, and you know, every now and again they have the category on the Bible. That always perks my interest, right? That's the most important thing I want to know. And the question was asked of the contestants, how many people were saved on the ark? I thought, piece of cake, right? Eight people. The contestant came out with some 300 and such people. 
300 people saved on the ark. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? That is ignorance, right? That is ignorance by people at large. They, they don't know God. They don't know His Word. They think they know, but they don't in reality even know basic fundamental doctrines. The doctrines of the Reformation are basic doctrines. There's nothing uh, intellectually difficult about them. There's nothing spiritually difficult about them. They are basic to the gospel, basic to a Bible knowledge that every Christian should have. And the sad thing, I think, is today, many Christians seem to be unaffected by their lack of knowledge. Prepare to go into Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and their work week with this basic lack in their lives. Perhaps if I can read a little story that might be a devotional to me. And that might spur me on and it might give me some positive thinking for the day. The, the gospel is not about positive thinking. In fact, the gospel is the very thing that reminds us quite clearly about all the negatives. Right? Our guilt, our sin, our need for Christ, uh, and so on. And so, it bothers me, I must confess, that so many professing Christians just don't know the Bible. Because to not know the Bible is to not know God. And to not know our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. So I think the current situation in churches, I don't think in our church of course, but in churches, that the level of Bible knowledge and understanding demands a return to biblical truth across the country, across the world. That's the first reason. Many are ignorant. Second reason is that such a, re a recovery of these truths has always produced a change. Always produced change. Change in churches, change in communities, change in cultures, change in countries, change. These truths, the gospel brings change. I think such a change is desperately needed and would be welcomed by all of us. The third reason why we need reform, always, is because a recovery of these biblical truths will change you personally. Not just change society, change cultures, change at large, but change you as an individual. Change me as an individual. So I ask myself, well, let's talk about these truths then that are so relevant 500 years ago, that are so evident in all the writings of the Reformers and in those of us today who confess and hold to Reformation truths. We know them as the five solas. What do we mean by that? Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. Sola Christus, Christ alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. And soli deo gloria, to God alone be glory. That's it. Just those five simple truths. Simple, yet profound, and yet powerful upon us, right? These are the foundation truths uh, that Paul would have preached. These are the foundation truths of the, Refor the Reformers and the Reformation. And I think they ought to be essential in your life. You ought to be able to think about them and rejoice in them and be overwhelmed by them. You ought to agree with them. You ought to affirm them. You ought to pray over them and thank God for the truth of them and what they mean. And then you should act upon them. You should live your life in the light of them.
That's because of internal change. So, where shall we begin? Which solar shall we begin with? I say, let's begin with God. Usually, we begin with Scripture. But let's this morning begin with God. God is the ultimate subject of all things. God is the ultimate object of all things. Why not begin with God? We know God from two sources. Creation, which you can see around you when you go outside. Everywhere, creation reminds us of God. By His divine power, He revealed Himself in what He has made. Creation. That's the first way we can know God. The second way is that we know Him through the Bible, through Scripture. Creation provides us with a sufficient amount of knowledge to know that God exists. You'd be foolish and a fool to look at creation and deny God. And how many people do that? Right? That leads them to say there is no God. Because they deny that He made that. Yet their hearts and their minds tell them that what is out there requires some incredible uh, creative power to come to what we see. From the little ant that crawls around to the growth of a flower or a vegetable to the stars, the sun, whatever it is, whatever God has made, it all points to Him. In fact, He shines so brightly, doesn't He, in His creation. Cannot help but see God. And yet creation cannot save us. Creation only provides us with enough information so that we are now accountable to God and thereby rendered inexcusable before God, answerable to God. So to look outside, to just look outside, already puts me in the place of being accountable to God for what I have seen with my two eyes. And I'm now inexcusable in trying to say there is no God. So creation is an important way whereby we know God. But it doesn't provide us with saving knowledge. Because it doesn't save us. We're not saved by knowing that God made the trees or the birds. Only Scripture then gives us saving knowledge. Only Scripture provides us with that essentially or essential needed truth about how we can be saved, how we can be accepted by God, how we can be right with God. Now these truths that I've just mentioned to you, creation and scripture or salvation, you find them right here in Isaiah chapter 43. So will you just look with me first of all at verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, so he made these people, Israel, for himself. Fear not, I have redeemed you, I have called you by my name, you are mine. So from a created position to a redeemed position. It says he made them and then he redeemed them. And they ought not to fear because they belong to God. They are now God's, not just by creation, but by redemption. And you and I this morning, we are God's by creation. That is true. But we are God's by redemption if we know our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 45, will you? Verse 12. Isaiah 45. Just turn over to verse 12. Isaiah 45, 12. God says, I made the earth, and I created man on it. 
It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. So who made everything? God made everything. Look at Isaiah 44 and verse 24. Isaiah 44, verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. So, I'm Redeemer, and I made everything. I'm the Creator. Now, you know, one of the things we say about God is that He's personal, isn't He? It is a mistake, I think, theologically or biblically to say God is a person. Because God is Spirit, who is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To, to say, use the phrase, God is a person, is not entirely accurate, but I understand what is meant by it. What we really mean by that is God is personal. God is a personal God. He's not like an idol, abstract. The, 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 the figment of man's imagination, the creation of the hands of men, that's not God. No, God is personal. He's a personal God. In fact, he says in this text, I am the Lord, your God. I am the Lord, your God. Look what he says in verse 1. I redeemed you, I called you by name. And in verse 5 he says, Fear not, for I am with you. In fact, verse 7, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Can we doubt that this God has made us for Himself, created us for Himself? He's a personal God, that's true. But it's very important, and what is the most important thing about God is that God is sovereign. That is what is most important, that God is sovereign. Look at verse 11. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared, I saved, I proclaimed, when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Henceforth I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? I, 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 I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me there is no Savior. Now, you know, this is big for the prophet, right? Because... In the prophecy of Isaiah, he's leading up ultimately to chapter 56 on through chapter 66, which is about the all-conquering servant who is now the king. And so he's developing this theme that behind this conquering king is Yahweh. In fact, this conquering king is Yahweh, is the Lord, is God Himself. Now, I mean, look at chapter 44 and look at verse 6. Chapter 44, 6, there, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Don't miss those verses, right? Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. You know, when you read the book of Revelation, don't you find that Jesus Himself says, I am the first? And the last, I am the beginning and the end. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the Lord. Look at verse 24. Oh, I should say verse 8, sorry. Look at verse 8 of chapter 44. Fear not, 
nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it, and you are my witnesses? Is there a God besides me? How would you answer that? Is there a God besides God? No. There is no other God, right? There is no rock. I know not any. Look at verse 24. We've already looked at this one. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread the earth by myself. Look at chapter 45, verse 5. I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. I form light. I create darkness. I make well-being. I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. In other words, God is sovereign, right? Can't miss it. That's what, that's what occupies the prophet's mind. Look at verse 18. For thus says the Lord, verse, chapter 45, verse 18, Thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Look at chapter 46, verse 9. I am God, and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all my purpose. I call a, prey, a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, I will bring it to pass, I have purposed, I will do it. What are all those verses about? They're about the fact that God is sovereign, right? I, I the Lord, nobody else. Dear congregation, until we acknowledge that God is absolutely sovereign, I don't mean partially sovereign. I don't mean sovereign in some things or certain things. I mean in absolutely everything that God is totally sovereign. Unless we are prepared to come to that position, acknowledge that position, you're going to end up wandering aimlessly, never fully understanding, grasping this God that the Bible speaks so clearly about. Now let me say to you, it's not about totally comprehending the sovereignty of God. It's not about that. But because who can comprehend the total sovereignty of God? None can. It's not about you and me comprehending the total sovereignty of God. What it is about is you and me totally submitting to the sovereignty of God. To saying, yes, Lord, you are sovereign. There are things I don't know. There are ways and purposes in my life I don't comprehend. But you know them, because you're Lord, you're God, you create them. And so we need to come to that kind of submission, that kind of acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God. And what do we all mean by that, about God's sovereignty? Ultimately, we simply mean God gets all the glory. Not some of the glory, not 99.9% .9 of the glory, and I get a little bit. No, I get nothing. God gets everything. 100% God gets the glory in everything and for everything. In chapter 42 and verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no one else. To no one. Nor my praise to idols. So not, not even the idols that ancient Israel made and worshipped Compare with God, compete against God, for there is no competition. 
There is only God. God is absolutely sovereign. And He gets the glory because He possesses the glory. He is glory. You know, the Lord Jesus in John chapter 17 in the high priestly prayer, on a number of occasions in that prayer, He mentioned the glory that He had with the Father before the world began. And that He desired that His disciples be with Me where I am, that they might see My glory. The glory I had, Father, with You before anything else was. God is all-glorious, isn't He? He deserves all the praise and all the glory because only God is God. So we confess solely, Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. So we give Him the glory, we praise Him for He is. We know that God in Himself has all life, all goodness, all power, and that's because of who He is. He is, as Acts 7.52 reminds us, He is the God of all glory. You read about that glory in the Old Testament, don't you? The cloud coming down, the Shekinah glory. That's the glory of God. That's God Himself. Now from that truth, from that glorious truth, we say that we can begin to comprehend Scripture when we acknowledge this God is the God of this Scripture. Now it's true, Scripture is the one thing that gives us God like this. We've just read these texts. So I know that God is sovereign because my Bible tells me that God is sovereign. So I acknowledge the truth of the sovereignty of God, the glory of God, because the Bible shows that to me, reveals that to me, tells that to me. In other words, Scripture says this to me about God. What is Scripture? That's the Word of God, right? It's not the word of man. Yes, there were human instruments. I mean, Moses wrote, didn't he? So many wonderful things in the Old Testament. And the prophets wrote Scripture. And Paul and Peter wrote Scripture. Yes, men were used by God. But the point of all of that is that ultimately we get to confess that what Scripture says equals God says. Not God plus Paul. Not this is Paul's idea of the truth or Peter's take on the truth or James's take on the truth. No, this is God's truth. When I read it, I'm reading God says this to me. So that's what we mean by sola scriptura. Scripture only is what we're talking about. And this scripture, by the way, is all I need for life, for practice, for godliness, I don't need the church and its interpretation. I don't need the church and its traditions. No. I only need the authority that comes from God, that is in His Word. The Scriptures are our final authority. That's why we say Scripture only. Scripture alone. Sola Scriptura. It's our only source of authority. It's not that my interpretation of God's Word is authoritative. That's not what it's about either. It's about the simple fact that what you read, every word you read, is from the mouth of God. Is God's word. That's why we affirm the doctrine of inspiration, don't we? All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Or to put it another way, all scripture is God-breathed from the mouth of God Himself. So when Peter writes, and when Paul writes, pouring their own personalities into their writings, it's true, yet what they write is from the mouth of God. 
It's inspired of God, right? We affirm that. We affirm, by the way, this doctrine of inerrancy, that the Bible in every part, in every place, in every word, has no errors and no contradictions. We confess that completely. Not only do we confess inerrancy, but we confess infallibility, that it is incapable of being in error, incapable of being wrong, the Scriptures themselves. Sola Scriptura means Scripture says equals God says. That's all it means. You know when you read your Bibles, you read that Old Testament phrase more than 400 times, thus says the Lord. More than 400 times in the Old Testament. Jesus comes along and He says, but I say unto you. Same word. The Lord says is exactly the same as I say, Jesus says, unto you. Same word. Same God. Same Lord. So the Scriptures are this, this beautiful source of the, of the glory of God and of the doctrines about God and about ourselves and about the Lord Jesus Christ all the doctrines of Scripture necessary for salvation and even, thank God, necessary for sanctification. I mean, if God saved you and left you alone, imagine that. No, God hasn't, has given us His Word so that we are, through saving knowledge and saving faith, come to understand who God is and all things about God. But then I discover I must fight sin. I must wage against the, wor the world. I must fight the world. I must deal with temptation. How do I do that? Sanctification. Through, praise God, the Word of God. Scripture alone. But why, why should we talk about salvation? Well, there's a simple answer, right? Why we should talk about salvation is because we're all sinners, Right? We are all, by nature, sinners, by birth, sinners, by practice, sinners. All of us, every one of us, not one of us is exempt. That's why I need salvation, because that's me. I was born in sin. I was conceived in sin. I was shapen in iniquity, the Scriptures teach. From in the womb, guilty, sinful. So I need a Savior. That's what the Scriptures tell me. I need saving. Now let's ask ourselves a question. Do, you, do we have a Savior? Does the Scripture tell us about a Savior? Oh yes it does, doesn't it? I mean that's the heartbeat, the central issue of the whole of Scripture that you and I need a Savior, need saving. And we discover that our Lord Jesus Christ is the only Savior. It's not Jesus and something else or somebody else like Buddha perhaps. No, it's Jesus only who claims equality with God in His essence, and more than that, who became a man and laid down His life sinless in our place. This Jesus. There are no other lords. There are no other gods. There are no other redeemers. That's why we confess sola Christus, Christ only. Because there are no other lords. Calvin said that Christ is Savior because He gives a complete salvation. That's why He's Savior. Now you know there are things that hide Jesus. 
sacramental systems in a church hide Jesus. Many churches offer Jesus plus something else. And when you do that, you hide Christ. Because Christ says, I alone am Lord, and I alone am Savior. Isn't that what all are going to do one day? Every knee is going to bow, and every, every tongue is going to confess just one simple thing. Jesus is Lord. For what purpose? To the glory of God the Father. We don't want to add to Christ. And we only want Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. We don't want a righteousness that comes through good works because there is no righteousness earned by good works. You can't keep the law as a means of righteousness. In fact, the law just condemns you and tells you that you're guilty and sinful because you break the law. I break the law. So it's not righteousness through God's work, I mean good works. That's not salvation. That's condemnation. No, salvation is sola Christus, Christ only, and Him alone. He alone, I am the Lord, and there is no other. I am your Savior. So all of our salvation is in Christ alone. Zwingli said, the Swiss reformer, that Christ is the own, only way of salvation of all who were, of all who are, and of all who ever shall be. He only is the way of salvation. When I read the New Testament, I discover the Apostle Paul's preaching. What was the heartbeat of his preaching? I determined to know nothing among you, the Corinthians, except Jesus and Him crucified. That's all. I only wanted you to know one thing, Christ and Him crucified for you. So he preaches Jesus. Isaiah 43.3 says, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Verse 11, I, I am the Lord and besides me there is no Savior. You know, imagine that you were a shepherd when the angelic chorus broke out in heaven outside the city of Bethlehem, which we're going to think about in a few weeks' time. And this angelic voice says, For unto you this day in this is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. What would you have done? Well, if you were a good Jew, Israelite, like those shepherds, you would say, let's go and see this thing that has been told us. Let's go and find out about the Savior. Isn't it the hope of every Christian, it's certainly my hope, that one day, knowing that my citizenship is in heaven, and from there we await the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. We're waiting for the Savior. Christ only is Savior. And there is salvation in no one else, in no other name, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we, you and me, must be saved. Must be saved. Christ only. Sola Christus. That name, that beautiful name, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's the Savior. And Jesus only, as we sing in the hymns, He is all that I need. It's all that I need. I don't need Jesus and something else. I need Christ. 
every day of my life. And I need the Jesus of Scripture as He is in this Word that God has given me, this Jesus alone. That's how the Reformers thought. But that leaves two issues at hand, right? I want to know, will this Jesus receive me? It's a big question. Will this Jesus, who is Savior, who is Lord, as the Bible teaches, will He receive me? That's the first question. Second question is, is anything required of me? What is required? Well, the Reformers, when they looked at those questions, the answer to the first one is, will this Jesus save me? Is yes, by grace. And the answer to the second one is, well, what is needed, what is required? Faith. Sola gratia, grace only. Sola fide, faith only. The Bible agrees with that. Ephesians 2.8, we read this, the passage from Ephesians 2 this morning, but verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved. How? Through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace, sola gratia. What is grace? Grace is just the unmerited, unearned favor of God upon you. Because of Jesus. That's all. You don't deserve it. You don't merit it. You can never work for it. Because grace is free. Grace is not earned. Grace is unearned. It is unmerited favor. It comes from God and it comes from our Lord Jesus Christ. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though He was rich, yet for our sakes He became what? Poor. So that we through His poverty might become rich. Grace. Taken from poverty to riches, from rags to riches in Christ. You know the thing about God? He is moved by your plight. He is affected by your plight and condition. God's heart stirs within Him when He looks upon His creation, these men and women and boys and girls, and they can do nothing for themselves. He feels for them. He is moved for them. Though He is angry at their sin and filled with wrath, Jesus stands before Him and says, These you have given me. You know, grace and mercy, they always go together, right? It's like faith and repentance. You cannot have faith without repentance. And you never have repentance without faith. You never have grace without mercy. You never have mercy without grace. They belong together. They are always together. Grace eliminates all ideas, every thoughts you and I might have, every attempts that you might come up with to earn your salvation. Grace says no. If you want to add to me, which the church has done for centuries, add to grace. Grace plus whatever it is, works, obedience, whatever. If you want to add, it's no longer grace, right? Because grace is free. Now it seems like a paradox to say free grace, right? But that is exactly what we must remind ourselves that this grace is free, not grace plus, but just grace. Sola gratia, grace of God. So trying to please God by my own efforts, my own works, whatever it might be, will never be of grace. Never ever of grace. 
Before I became a Christian, I obeyed as far as I was able to, thinking I was accepted before God by my obedience. But do you know that my obedience before I was saved was simply a works kind of obedience? That the law says, no, no. No, no, no. There's no working in grace. It's condemnation from the law. You're guilty. You're guilty. Jesus comes along and says, I've got free grace for you. You can't work for it. You don't have to work for it. You can't earn it. There's nothing you can give, say, do that will merit this grace. It's free. And it's all grace. And it's all yours. I give it to you. My grace for you. So grace eliminates all the ideas we ever might come up with, all the attempts to earn our salvation. That is why we have, by the way, Ephesians 2.9, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Because that's what we would do. <laughs> if I just contribute a little bit, I'm going to say, look what I did. Look what I did. Luther was once talking to his good friend Philip Melanchthon. And he said this to, to Melanchthon, he said, I am seeking and I am thirsting for nothing else than a gracious God. I like that. I am seeking and thirsting for nothing else but a gracious God. And then he said this, he says, Grace is simply God forgiving us our sins for the sake of His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is the covering, the washing away of all of our sin. You know, it took Luther a long time to understand grace. He was working and working and working. He was beating himself to try and please God. He nearly died a number of times in his fastings, in the abuse of his body, trying to earn God's favor. And none of it works. You see, this grace is never earned. It's always free. And it's God's grace it's sola gratia. That's why I like in, in uh, Isaiah 43, verse 19 through 21, Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Isn't that grace? Yes. I'm doing a new thing. It springs forth. Do you not see it? Yes. I'll make a way in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, wild beasts honor me, jackals and ostriches. I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to drink. To give people, sorry, to give drink to my people, to the people whom I formed for myself, so that they might declare my praise. I'm doing a new thing. Well, now the big question is, right? Can all of this be true for me? Can it be mine? How can it be mine? Right? That's the big question. The answer to that question, Scripture says, is by faith only. Sola fide. But then you ask yourself, what is faith? Well, Ephesians 2.8 says it is the gift of God. So where does faith ultimately come from? Faith is the gift of God. If I were to give you a very simple biblical definition of faith, it would be simply, faith is believing what God has said. That's all faith is. And it's, and when you boil it all down, right, faith is just believing what God has said. Now, when you read the Reformers, they talk about Saving faith. They talk about justifying faith. That they're saved through faith, by faith. Saved by just this justification. 
But what is that? I'll tell you what that faith is. That is a faith that rests on Christ only. Everything on Christ latches on to Christ, receives Christ, so that to be justified by faith, according to Romans 5.1, is to be accepted by God, to be right with God, to be at peace with God. In other words, God's righteousness is applied to us when we confess and believe the truth about Jesus that God has provided for us. And it's for all who believe, Romans 3.22. We have faith in Jesus, only in Jesus. It is justifying faith. God remains just, and at the same time justifies the sinner, because Christ is the innocent sufferer, the one who took our place. See, it's all Christ. It's all the Lord Jesus. He is the propitiation for our sins. Or as Isaiah likes to say, the Lord is our Redeemer. The Lord is our Redeemer. What does faith do? Faith goes to the cross, doesn't it? And there at the cross, faith sees Jesus dying in our place. And it just throws itself on Christ, the cross. Don't think you can be a Christian without the cross. Don't think you can be a Christian without renouncing, repenting, turning from all that's in the past. Because faith turns. Repentance turns. We turn to God. We turn from ourselves. And we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, but now is crowned with glory and honor. And we see Jesus lifted up for us at the cross. I must like John Bunyan, go to the cross so that my burden can roll away into the tomb forever. My sins upon his shoulders, his righteousness covering all of me. That's salvation. Faith comes, by the way, as we say so often, through hearing. Hearing the word, scripture, the word of Christ. We're not justified, Paul tells the Galatians, by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ, Galatians 3.16. Faith then latches on to the mercy of God, onto the grace of God, and it says, that's for me, Jesus died for me. We're not talking about a generic dying. We're not talking about a corporate dying. We're talking about an individual, personal Lord and Savior who took my place who died for me, Russ Atmore. I don't ask this morning if you believe about Jesus. I ask this morning, do you believe Jesus? That's all. Not do you believe about Him, but do you believe Him? And what He says, He's done for us, for, for you. Or to put it another way, do you know the truth of uh, verse 25 of Isaiah 43? I am He, I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. A holy God says, I blotted out because of my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Now that's forgiveness, isn't it? That's washing, that's cleansing, that's propitiation, that's atonement. That's Jesus for me, for you. There were blind men who came to Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 9. And they asked Jesus if He could help them see. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? 
They said, yes, Lord. Done. They saw, right? They believed, right? Jesus says to you, to me this morning, do you believe that I loved you? Do you believe that I took your place? Do you believe that I bore God's wrath against you? I did that. Do you believe that? Do you confess that? Do you say, yes, Lord, I believe? That's what the blind men did. By the way, only blind men can do that. And we are blind by sin. Or the blind man in John chapter 9. What a beautiful passage, right? Jesus says to him when he finds him again, after he's lectured the Pharisees so beautifully, right? Jesus comes to him and finds him. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Good question. And the man says, well, who is he so that I can believe in him? And what does Jesus say? He whom you see and is speaking with you. Lord, I believe. Notice, Lord. Out of nowhere, Lord comes. I believe. The Bible says he worshipped Jesus. Isn't worship reserved for God? He worshipped Jesus. We must be like Martha at Lazarus' tomb in John chapter 11, when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you, Martha, believe this? Do you believe that? What did she say? Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. You are the Son of God who is coming into the world. Didn't Paul tell the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16 when he asked, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. You see what true faith does? It says, I believe. It confesses all that... Jesus is all that the Scriptures teach about Him. It says, I believe that. I believe. And every time you're exposed to biblical truth, you just say, yes, I believe that. I believe the truth. Because it's God who says it in His Word. That's what faith does. That's what I must do. I must confess Jesus. So you see, justification, which is, the, which is this material cause, justification by faith, of the Reformation, is all just about being right with God. It's a big word, justification, isn't it? But it just means you're right with God. How can I be right with God? I believe, I apprehend this salvation by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And nothing must be added to this faith. I mustn't come with my works. I mustn't come with my family. I mustn't come with my baptism. I mustn't come with my church. I mustn't come with my law obedience. I must come with nothing except faith in Christ. That saves. It's not faith plus the church, faith plus baptism, faith plus works. None of that. It's just believing what Jesus says about Himself and what Jesus says about you. What Jesus says about me. And then God sovereignly opens your heart. He brings pain to it. He cuts it open. He shows you your condition. He shows you your nature. And then He brings healing in the person of His Son. Jesus binds up the wounds and pours in the Spirit of God with comfort. And so our regeneration is such a beautiful thing. And our eyes are wide open because now we see the light and we see the truth and we confess, yes, this Jesus is mine. He died for me. He's mine 
And it's not by infusing righteousness into us, but by imputing righteousness to us and imputing our sins to Jesus, who was obedient to the Father. So we talk about an imputed righteousness, never about an infused righteousness, or nor do we talk about an inherent righteousness, because there is no one who is holy except God. None are righteous, no, not one. So God sovereignly, in every aspect of salvation, does everything for us. Because we are dead in trespasses and sins. And only God can make us alive in Christ. That's what He does. So these truths then, they glorify God, don't they? They, bring, they give all the glory to God. They exalt God. God gets all the praise. God gets all the glory. And do you know what you and I get to do? Get down, fall down on our knees and worship and say, Thank you, Lord, for saving me. I'm unworthy, I'm guilty, I'm condemned, but thank you for Jesus who took my place. Salvation is always a new thing when any sinner is saved, right? When one sinner repents, the angels in heaven rejoice. Imagine, the, imagine heaven, right? Even now, I'm sure heaven is just breaking forth in praise, the angelic chorus, because somewhere some sinner repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the kind of truth we need, right, for ourselves. We need a recovery of these truths, personally, corporately. That's why we believe in the solas of the Reformation, because they're all of God. God alone. Everything about being a Christian belongs to God. He gets all the praise and all the glory. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these wonderful truths that we read and know in your word, and we've only just scratched the surface of them this morning. And yet you remind your Old Testament people that you are God, and you alone are God. There's no other. There's no other Savior. There's no other Redeemer. There's no other Creator. And that's what we say. We confess ourselves. You are the Creator. You are our Redeemer, our Savior. You are our God. How we thank You for the Lord Jesus, who is God, the Son, who is our Creator, who is our Redeemer. And how we thank You for the Holy Spirit, who, who has worked the works of God in us and who sanctifies us, and purifies us, and cleanses us. Help us, we pray, then, to be your people in this world. Keep us. Strengthen us. And we desire, Father, that from these truths you get all the praise and all the glory, and all that we can say is, thank you, Lord, for what you have done for me. So we praise you and we worship you this morning for these things. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear like Isaiah urged upon his people, that they might believe and confess these things. And to God alone then be all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen. Amen. Amen.